Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you're a guest, welcome. Welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. Let us know how we can help you. Um, if you're looking at plugging into this church, let us know how we can assist you. And if you're a member, know that we love you guys. We've been praying for you guys. And uh, let us know how we can pray for you. Amen. Uh, Jared just read through the text, and we are in 1 Samuel. So we, we walk through books of the Bible here at this local congregation. Uh, we, we walk through the text altogether. We, we do expository preaching. We let the Word of God speak to us and direct our lives. So, um, so please go ahead and open your Bibles. And as Jared was reading the text, as you understand, it is about Saul's anointing. Saul's anointing. What I love about this passage of scripture is I cannot help but see the sovereignty of God. When I read through the Bible, I see different attributes of God, different characteristics of our amazing God. And in this passage of scripture, especially chapter 10, we see that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all things. For example, we notice in this passage of scripture how God was sovereign in the sense of picking this king. The people rebelled against him, asked for a king, and God said, I will give you what you want, but it will be my choice for you. In that he chose, he allowed the donkeys of Saul's father to run away. And here is Saul and his servant chasing after the donkeys. God in his sovereignty allowed Saul to meet Samuel. Where Samuel told him, you are called by God to be the king. Not only that, but we see how detailed God was in his prophecy concerning Saul. Gave him three signs. That you will go to Rachel's tomb, you will, you will see two men, and they will say this to you. They will tell you specifically in detail that your father's donkeys are found. Not only that, but your father cares and he's concerned about you. And that's exactly what happened. The second sign is that he met three men going to Bethel to worship, and they had three different products in their hands, and they will give it to you, Saul. Do you see the sovereignty of God? The prophecy here, and it was fulfilled. The third prophecy and third sign that shows the sovereignty of God is that God said to Saul through Samuel that you would go home to Gibeath Elohim. This is where you're from, and you will find a garrison of Philistines there, and you will find prophets, and these prophets will prophesy, and you will prophesy. And that's exactly what happened. Here, it's, it's a continuation with the sovereignty of God. That God is going to allow them to cast lots, and that lot will fall on the tribe of Benjamin with the clan of the Matrites and the name of Saul, the son of Kish. Again, we see how sovereign God is. Do not miss this. God's sovereignty is all throughout this passage of Scripture. But this morning specifically, I want us to see two things here. I want us to observe Samuel's rebuke, which is in verses 17 through 19. Samuel's rebuke. He rebuked the people and Samuel's sermon. He summons the people. And we see this in verses 20 through 27. 
the beautiful thing about the sovereignty of God here is that we also can see the responsibility of men. They still had to cast lots, right? They still had to pick Saul. And God in his sovereignty chooses to use man's responsibility and we see this tension here. But yet, they're good friends. They cast lots, but God determines. This is a beautiful thing for us to see. As we observe even in our own life, God is absolutely sovereign. But you are responsible as well. You are responsible to live in holy lives. You are responsible to opening up your Bibles and reading. You are responsible to pursuing holiness and righteousness. And at the same time, this sovereign God is amazing. It's so much that Spurgeon said that these are two good friends. The responsibility of men and the sovereignty of God are two good friends. Spurgeon also says he rests his, his head at night on the pillow of God's sovereignty. This morning, see the sovereignty of God on display, but as well as men's responsibility. Join me as we pray together. Father, we are here this morning to make much of your name. We want to know more about our God. God, you have given us front row seats to seeing your sovereignty on display. I pray that we will not sell those tickets, but God, we are anticipating with great excitement and urgency to see more, O oh Lord. So I pray that as we are observing your sovereignty, move in our hearts, O oh Lord. Show us our responsibility, O oh Lord. Show us our obedience here, O oh Lord. Prick our hearts, and if there's any in this room that do not know you, draw them to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Cause them to repent and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not. And give us what we do not have. We ask all of this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. And God's people said, amen, amen. The first point here is Samuel's rebuke. This is quite interesting, and I want you to follow with me. Notice where the people are gathered. They are gathered at Mizpah. Mizpah. Mizpah was the place several years ago where great revival happened. If you remembered when Samuel called the people to repent, this great repentance was done at Mizpah. But here, he's not calling for a great repentance there is a great rebuke, a great rebuke. I don't want you to miss this because here is the application here. The people of God here are struggling with unbelief. And this is a characteristic of the people of Israel throughout the Bible. They cried out for 40 years that God would come and rescue them from the bondage of the Egyptians and God sent Moses and Aaron to rescue them. And you would think after God gave them 10 plagues to see how amazing he is and how he is protecting his people that they would believe. But no, they still struggle with unbelief. Even when they are in the wilderness and you find that Pharaoh is coming after them, the Egyptians is coming after them, God in his sovereignty, in his protection, protected his people with a pillar of clouds 
by day and a pillar of fire by night. And you would think they would believe, but no. He caused the Red Sea to open part ways for them to cross. And you would think they would believe, but no. And it was because of their unbelief that they did not enter into the promised land. But we have the great Shema in the book of Deuteronomy where God says to them, you will not enter, but your children will enter. But teach your children the word. Teach them the word of God. And then we see a new generation. I'm going somewhere with this. A new generation in the book of Joshua. And I really think the title of the book of Joshua is when God's people is moved by faith, trust in him by, in faith, they will do extraordinary things. And that's exactly what we find in the book of Joshua. These men and women have faith in God. They're conquering cities upon cities. They're experiencing amazing things, amazing victory because of the great Shema. This generation, have, they've been serving God. It's a different generation than their parents. And then we get into the book of Judges, Judges chapter 2. That generation is dead, and it's a new generation. And again, we struggle with what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It says, and all the generation also were gathered to the, their fathers, and there also arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or work that he had done for Israel. Unbelief. Samuel is born. A little after that generation, Samuel sees the chaos. Hannah sees the chaos. Hannah cries out for God to send a prophet. Send someone, God, so your word will be known to the people. And in Mizpah, we have this great revival and repentance. But wait, will there be unbelief again? Yes. Samuel is older now. The Bible says he's older when he was an old man. This is a different generation, perhaps. And what are they struggling with again? Unbelief. Unbelief. We see over and over and over again, the people of Israel struggle with unbelief in Scripture. Unbelief in Scripture. And friends, I don't want you to miss this. Come in closer and get this. We are only one generation away from unbelief in our culture. One generation away from unbelief. It's true. You might be saved. What about your children, your grandchildren? You're thinking about them in the future. Are you thinking about your great-grandchildren? We are only one generation away from unbelief. And if we are lackadaisical in our faith, and not fighting for the faith, and living by faith, we will see that our children and great-grandchildren will struggle with unbelief. And this is what we notice here with the people of Israel. I love what Ronald Reagan mentioned, right? It's nothing to do with spirituality, but I'm going somewhere with this. Listen to what he says. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in their bloodstreams. It must be fought for, protected, handed on from them to do the same 
Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free and replace that word freedom with faith. We need to fight for our faith, stand on our faith for the sake of our children and for the sake of our grandchildren. For the sake of the gospel being spread. But so many of us are being tempted to walk away from Christianity. And we question things on sexuality, gender identity. Well, the Bible says about homosexuality, but you know what? God is love. So we begin to deviate just one inch. And then we find ourselves two years from now so far away from the Bible. We are called to stand on our faith. And here is a great rebuke for the people here of Israel and a great rebuke for us here in the United States. We say in God we trust, but really practically in our homes, we do not trust in God. What do we trust in? Our money, our careers. We, we trust in ourselves. But friends, we need to stand on our faith and fight for our faith. Because I see Israel here, and I see us in the local congregation struggling with the same thing. So, so notice with me very carefully, in Samuel's rebuke here, there are two important implications that we must understand. What, what are they? One, one, first, in his rebuke, he reminds the people of God that God's, of God's great and saving work in their history. Do you notice he reminds them of God working in their history? Even if they struggle with unbelief over and over and over again, Samuel is saying to them, notice the presence of God, the love of God, how God helped you through all of those difficulties. Notice very carefully in 1 Samuel chapter 10 verse 18, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But what is God doing? God is saying, I've always been with you, even in your unbelief. Here's a sharp rebuke, but in this rebuke, it's a reminder of God chesed, a reminder of God's covenant love for his people. So to turn away, turn away, even his rebuke, there is a sense of calling them to repentance as well. But they will not do that. They will not do that. We know what God did for his people. He saved them from the hands of the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Philistines who are oppressing them right now. And likewise for us in the New Testament, as Christians today, we are not facing the Amorites and the Egyptians and the Philistines. But you know what we face today? We face the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are our enemies. And today, a lot of Christians are, are falling prey to the same thing that the, the Israelites fall prey to because we want to look more and more like the world, right? Right? We want to dress like the world. We want to talk like the world. We want to act like 
the world, when you are called to be different. This is what began this whole episode. The people are asking for a king like the other nations. They want to be like the other nations. And God is saying, no. First of all, don't be like the other nations. And second of all, I am your king. Make me your king. Worship me as your king. That's not what they will do, right? They see what they are doing here. But for us as Christians, when we try to look more and more and more like the world, we are saying to God, we do not want you to be our king. And I've seen this time and time again, time and time again, of Christian so-called artists that starts singing gospel songs and Christian songs, and they begin to compromise. Their compromise is so bad that the world looks at them as disgusting. Even the world says, man, what kind of hybrid are you? <laughs> you don't look like us, and you don't look like the Christians. What kind of hybrid are you, right? Even the world is disgusted by this. But friends, I, I'm here to help you understand this, and, and Scripture is calling us to understand that we need to be separate. We need to be different. But notice very carefully what they were asking for. The people were not asking for a new God to worship, but only a political system that make them like all the other nations. Give us a political system that is like the other nations. And God then says to them, which leads us to the second point here, second point here about Samuel's rebuke, God rebukes them and God helps them understand that because they're asking for a political system that looks like the other nation, they are in turn wanting to worship another God. You are disobeying the first and great commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The fact that you're looking, wanting to be like the other nation, you are disobeying the first commandment. Notice what God says here. See for yourself. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 19, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distress. And you said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And I think if James in the New Testament was there with them, this is exactly what James would have said to them. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James mentioned you adulterous people. Do you not know friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. They wanted to look so much like the world, and in turn, they themselves were not worshiping God like they ought to. But coming closer, and write this down if you can. Beloved, being God's, beloved, being God's people demands fidelity to him and holiness before the world. I'll say it again. Being God's people demands fidelity to him and holiness before the world. This is exactly what we see here. But what else do we see? We do see Samuel's rebuke, right? We see his rebuke, but we also see Samuel's summon. He summons the people. 
And there is something amazing about this. I do not want you to miss this. Follow with me, come in closer, and get this. The people would have some sense of an unsettling feeling and surprise about this summon. All of a sudden, Samuel's like, summon all the people. All the tribes come. And Samuel is given direction. So for them, this is the first time they actually had to pick a king. So there was a sense of surprise. What they were not surprised about was the whole procedure of what he was doing. When he says to summon the tribe, then the clan, then the household, then a person. The only other time that happened in scripture happened several, several years ago in another generation with their parents, perhaps, in the book of Joshua with the sin of Achan. Do you remember that? When the people of God went to fight against Ahai and they were defeated because of Achan's sin. God says to Joshua, go, summon, summon the tribes, then the clans, then the household, then the man. So here specifically, they would understand doing that was a sense of judgment because the whole point of God doing that in the book of Joshua was to judge Achan and his family because they were put to death. Now we notice what Samuel is doing here. Samuel calls for them to summon the tribes. All the tribes came and brought a lot. The tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah, they all brought a lot. The lot of Benjamin was picked. Then the clans, the Matrites, they were chosen. And out of that clan, Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. As he was chosen, he is brought before the Lord. But what is the point here? What is the point here? Saul was selected as king by Lot for three reasons. I don't want you to miss this. Pay close attention to this. First was to indicate that God's agreement to provide a king was a form of his judgment. That, that's the whole point here. Usually, when a prophet would denounce Israel's sin and sentence of God's judgment immediately after he would announce, he would announce that particular sin. And here, we notice exactly what Samuel is doing. The whole lot process was to show God's judgment. We see it exactly happening in the life of Achan. Here, Samuel is saying, go ahead and summon the people. But as the prophet does that, what is the prophet supposed to do immediately? Announce God's judgment. And here, he mentions Saul. He mentions the household of Saul. Friends, don't miss this. When God allowed them to cast lots, it was to show his judgment on the people of Israel. Well, how do you know this, Kevin? Notice earlier when God told them you would choose a king, and I will give you a king. What will the king do to you? He will take, 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 take. He will oppress you. He will do all these things to you. And this is it. It's coming to fruition here. I love what one commentator mentioned. Richard Phillips, he says, sometimes God's most severe judgment 
is to permit our sin and its consequences, and so it was here. And so it was here. God is using Saul to discipline his people. Don't miss this. That's the sovereignty of God here as well. As a matter of fact, we have a good picture of it later on. This is what God is going to tell his people in the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 13, verse 11. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. This is God speaking. Give your king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath, and we know the end of Saul. We know exactly what would happen. What happened to him? Second, second, why would they cast lots? Second, they used lots to show that Saul was God's choice for kingship. This is the sovereignty of God here. God used this to show them it was his choice. It's his choice. God chose exactly what the people wanted, gave them what they wanted to discipline them and hopefully to bring a sense of repentance in their life. It's our God. And third, third, the casting of lots help us see the responsibility of men and the sovereignty of God. It helps us see that. Who is casting the lots? In whose hand? It is in the hands of man. They cast the lots, but God determines the outcome. Well, Kevin, is there scripture for this? I'm glad you're asking this. Because in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The Lord determines it. It's in the hands of man, but God determines it. What a great picture of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. They're two friends. They're two friends. But friends, notice with me very carefully here. This is quite interesting and humorous as well. Couldn't help but laugh at this. Saul is chosen, but then they can't find him. <laughs> Where's Saul? He's hiding among the baggage. I can imagine Saul is finally chosen. Saul, the son of Kish. Saul, the son of Kish, where are you? And there's nothing. No one knows where he is but God. Again, the sovereignty of God. Who tells the people here where Saul is? God. God says he's hiding among the baggage. Go, find him. Find him, bring him. But I'm a little puzzled as to why Saul was hiding. Were you, when you read the text? Why is it that he's hiding? What's going on here? And there are two views here. One is a positive view. The other is a negative view. The positive view, many commentators or some commentators see this as commendable because they think that Saul was very humble. One particular commentator says, for instance, he points out that many of God's best servants have sought to avoid position of public prominence. Well, I don't want to just disagree with this guy, but I will disagree with him. And here's the reason why. Saul wasn't one of God's choice servants. He was not. From the very beginning, we see the disposition of Saul to put him in the same category as David and, and, and Abraham would be a, a, a mistake. He wasn't one of God's choice servants. 
choice servants. He was not humble. The next thing that someone says here concerning him is this. It says Saul's concern. He was very concerned for the well-being of the nations. Since they thought someone else would, he thought someone else would be better to lead the nation than him. So there are several commentators who are saying this is a sense of humility because Saul was concerned about the nation of Israel. He was thinking to himself, he's not a good leader. Maybe there's someone else who can take that position. But friends, when we continue to read 1 Samuel, we'll see the opposite. As a matter of fact, when Samuel told Saul the kingdom is no longer to be given to him and is given to someone else, what did Saul do? He held on to it. He was mad. And when he found out that David was the next person that God chose, what did he do? He tried to kill David time and time again. So we cannot look at this text and say there is a sense of positive that Saul was concerned for the nation of Israel, that there is a sense of humility here. I really think it's the second point. It's the negative aspect of it, which shows more of fear. He was fearful. It showed more of a sense of him being a coward, hiding in the baggage. And that in itself, when we read the text, we see more of that being in context. That he's more fearful than anything else. He's a coward. And what do we know about this specifically? We know because Saul possibly knew that God was judging Israel and God was using him to judge Israel. And I don't blame him. I would be a coward too. <laughs> yes, God is using me to judge his people like he used Balaam, like he used Nebuchadnezzar. It didn't turn out good for these people. Here specifically, that's exactly what we see. We'll read a little bit more about Saul later on, and we will notice about Saul how selfish he was. He neglected his duties. He was a coward. There was no courage at all. But take a look at verse 26 with me very carefully. Verse 26. What a powerful passage of Scripture here. The men of valor whose heart God had touched they all went with Saul, yet some looked at Saul and called him worthless, worthless. And the text here tells us that they were rebels and friends coming closer and don't miss this. Even when God allows for an ungodly person to lead us, whether it's in our nation or wherever it is, God has called for us to submit. Now, listen, listen. Don't, don't miss this. Don't miss this. This submission is not, I'm submitting to someone without submitting to the Lord first. No, we, we submit to God. We submit to what God has called us to do. And if that person is asking us to do something different than what God has called us to do, there is no need to submit. But if they're not asking us to do that, then we're called to submit. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul mentioned in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject 
to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So here they are, not submitting to Saul, and God is not happy, even if Saul was an ungodly king. There's a principle in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Christians are called to be submissive people. We're called to be submissive people. It doesn't mean that we do not speak up against what is wrong. We do. We stand on biblical truth. And when the Bible speaks, we speak. But if the Bible calls for us to submit, we submit. You know what's very hard for me to do? It's to submit. <laughs> what's very hard for you to do is to submit. Our default is to not submit. But here... As Christians, we are called to be introspective, look at our hearts on a consistent basis, and say to ourselves, am I submissive here? Or am I just wanting to go against something just because I want to? But what a great principle here. God is calling for the people to submit even to an ungodly king. And friends, in conclusion, I don't want you to miss this. This is really good. As I'm looking at Saul and looking at Jesus, I see many contrasts. The first contrast I see here is this. There is a comparison to some degree. Both of them were hiding. Saul is hiding, basically in the, in the baggage, right, among the baggage. And Jesus concealed his true identity. That's what he was doing from the very beginning when he would cast out demons and he would make sure they didn't say a word. When he would heal people, make sure they didn't say a word. So it seems as if they're both hiding, but it's different. Saul is hiding because he is a coward and fearful. Jesus concealed his identity because he was obedient to the Father. It wasn't his time to be revealed. So, so we see the contrast here. Second, Samuel's acclamation that there is none like him among the people was correct. When he was talking about Saul, on the outward appearance, he was tall. He was handsome. He was perhaps charismatic. And Samuel says to the people, there is none like him. And they're saying, long live the king. But it's so true of Jesus on the inside. Inwardly, there is none like Jesus. His character is impeccable. He is without sin. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. What a great truth. As a matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's Jesus. What else? Don't miss this and coming closer. As we read through 1 Samuel, Saul was the instrument of God's wrath on the people. Don't miss this. God used Saul to pour his wrath upon the people, to discipline the people. He put heavy burdens on the people. However, Jesus took on God's wrath for the sake of the people. 
You see the difference? There's a major contrast between our Lord and Saul. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says, Whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And the word propitiation is blood sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. Saul was used as an instrument to pour on God's wrath on God's people. Jesus was used for God's wrath to be poured upon him for your sake. This is why Jesus is the superlatively better king, the ultimate king, the king of kings. The people rebel. And God in his sovereignty and mercy and kindness and love will send Jesus, who is the true king, who is the humble king. My question for you today is this. I know you've heard a lot about Jesus. I know you've probably read about Jesus. And maybe you think you believe in Jesus. But can you come before him right now? Bow your knees and your hearts and call upon this king of kings. Like Samuel, who gives a really great rebuke, there is a great rebuke for us in God's church today, his universal church, to turn away from sin and to trust in Jesus. Will you repent? Will you turn to Christ? Will you live for Christ? Will you make much of Christ? Join me as we pray together. Father, I am so thankful for Scripture, and Paul mentioned that the Old Testament Scriptures are for us, for, as an example for us. I am thankful that when Paul wrote the New Testament, and Peter wrote the New Testament, and James wrote the New Testament, and the apostles wrote the New Testament, they had the Old Testament with them. That's all they had with them. And even in the Old Testament, we see Christ. So God, I pray that as we are before Christ, that there is an urgency in our hearts to live for Christ. Wake us up. Wake us up. Cause us to serve you, O oh Lord. We know that you are sovereign and you're working all things. God, you've also called for us to be responsible in the way we pursue you. Let us not be lackadaisical in our faith, but stand up. Let us stand in our faith. Let us walk by faith. Let us practice our faith and be diligent in doing that. Let us protect our faith, O oh Lord. God, be with us. In your mighty and precious name, amen.